Yes, what we have heard from the reading is a beautiful picture given to us by the Apostle John. And this is a picture of the Son of Man, that is Jesus Christ, in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches. The Son of Man died and lives forevermore. He is the first. Creation began with Him. Salvation of humankind also began with Him. He will be there the last day when all is completed for eternity. Now what are we to make of this picture? We need to translate this picture into the life of the church. Is the life of our church a reflection of this picture? A reflection of Christ walking in the midst of his church. To do this, we need firstly to understand the picture and secondly to interpret this picture in terms of the present. To understand this picture is not very difficult because part of the picture has been interpreted for us in the text. The lampstands are the churches. We will say a bit more about the church later. The Son of Man is clearly Christ. The white hairs imply dignity as an ancient one. That is God. He has come in judgment with eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. His thunderous voice speaks of judgment and discipline. Just as the two-aged sword from his mouth. The seven stars are angels or messengers of the seven churches. So this picture speaks of the building, refining, and the discipline of the church by Christ himself. The question we need to ask is this. Is, is the church living with Christ, walking in her midst, or is it in name only? And then we go on to do our own things. We need to transpose this picture into today's setting. Or <clears throat> try to interpret this picture. So, to interpret this picture, we need to look at the operations of the church. In other words, the church culture. And then try to ascertain the core assumptions that lies behind that culture. And a good place to start is to look at the word church. And from the picture that John has given to us, we know that the church is far from perfect. It's assumed in that picture. And Christ continue his work through the Spirit in building, correcting, and disciplining the church. The word church translates the word ecclesia in Greek. It means those who are called out. That is, the called out people of God. The term ecclesia is used for an assembly of people rather than for a building or an institution. But unfortunately, the use of the word in this way is lost in today's usage. Most people would understand the term church 
as a building. As a result, most churches spend much of their time in maintaining buildings and in preserving the institution rather than in the ministry of Christ. And the church ministry is the topic for next week. I don't need to say much about building maintenance because we don't have one. By this, by this, I don't mean that it is not necessary. We need a location to meet as God's people. We don't have a building of our own simply because we don't have the money to buy one. That might be a good thing. Now that we have separated the church, we have separated the church from from a building. Um, then my next task is to separate the church from the institution. Now this is going to be a bit difficult because the church today has been institutionalized. That is to say, the church is working to maintain its structure and program. And before we go further, we need to see very briefly how has this happened. From Pentecost, the birth of the church, God's people meet in homes and at certain localities, including the Jewish synagogue. And churches started spontaneously in communities where they lived, rather than across countries. When Paul wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, he addressed them in their localities, the church in their homes, and the church at a place like Galatia, Philippi, and so on. The church were then persecuted, and they had no choice but to go underground, very much like the churches in communist countries today. That was during the first 300 years after Christ. Then came Emperor Constantine. He became a Christian, and he officially recognized Christianity. And that may have been a good thing. The church could move on and made a stand in the community and across geographical borders. And then the hierarchy within the church grew, grew in power and in status. And even kings had to come and bow before the Pope and be disciplined by him. With this power brewed corruption, and soon the power of the cross, which Paul so fervently talked about, was made empty. The institution became preeminent, and Christ no longer walked among the churches. Let us not forget that the church is the community of God's people, the body of Christ not merely an association of like-minded people. And I want to spend some time making the distinction between the church as a body and the church as an institution. And I put it up on this chart. Um, I, I won't speak to each of the, uh, uh, each of the uh, items there, but you can see very quickly that most people would see the church as an institution and that's what is on your right hand side and I want to contrast that 
with the church as a living organism, as the body of Christ, with Christ walking amongst his churches. This is not an analytical division of the letter to the Ephesians. The broad divisions um, it highlight the points made in the letter and we can convenient, conveniently contrast that with the secular understanding of the church. The triune God is one and we cannot separate their actions. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul moves freely from one person of the triune God to the other, Father, Son, Spirit. And he just takes that liberty to move very freely there. While there are aspects of the church which are institutional, we, we need to acknowledge that. The sociological expressions are not the determinants of the church. They are not the primary issues. But they are part of the necessities in any earthly community. Without Christ walking in the church, then we will see the sociological necessities as the determinants of the life of the church. These sociological necessities do not determine nor define the church. Where there is no life, then these sociological expressions become all that is left. And that's why they are clung on so dearly. And then they become things of, of primary importance. The church, the body of Christ, is not determined sociologically, but by the God who brought it into existence. Of course, there will be people coming into the church because they see it as a community. That's okay. They gather because of their self-determination rather than they are called by God and incorporated into the body of Christ. A church that is founded that way, that is sociologically, is not the organic body of Christ, but an inorganic, lifeless institution. And i got to say this, that I guess the early days of Bethel was something like that. People came along because their children could find company. We should not deny them of their friendship. However, we need to bring to them the good news of the gospel. But if a community for their children is all that they want, then they will turn their backs on the church when that need is no longer needed. And that's why we should not present the church as a sociological enclave. Ethnic churches are often guilty of that. The sociological should come out of the spiritual. What I mean is that we must firstly minister the word. We need to express the reality of the body of Christ in some way. And then a community of God's people will result. Remember, it is not merely words that makes the community, but it needs to be expressed in some ways that followed the word preached. And that way is, will be expressed 
quite differently in different communities as the Spirit refines and as the Spirit leads. It is the hearts, those expressions uh, must, must result from the heart's response to what God has placed along our path. We should not blindly follow a pattern set by others. And that's the reality of the body of Christ. The charter of the church is the ministry of the triune God, calling us to himself. As Paul says, and the the verse that we have known, in Ephesians he said, And God put all things under his feet, that's the feet of Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. However, in our structured society, together of a body, together as a body, we need to be incorporated by law with the constitution, and that's why we need to have an annual general meeting. That is to make transparent the operations of the church and to make the leaders accountable. Look, but I would say this if the corporate laws do not stipulate an AGM, we would on our own, on our own accord, call a church meeting to inform the church of the way the offering was handled and the things that we propose to implement as the Lord leads us. It is an expression of the body of Christ. And that is a way to express the oneness in the body of Christ. So the corporate law is not a bad thing. But we must not think that that's all there is. We need to see beyond the things that we do to the God who ministered to us through Jesus and the Spirit. And that's primary. It is the Holy Spirit that sustains and and invigorates the church. Without the Spirit, in old language, Holy Ghost, all we have is a legal ghost walking in our midst, holding us bondage to a lifeless piece of document. Paul was aware of the differences in the way he saw things. He said to the Corinthian church that he planned to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wider ministry, but there are many adversaries. He was steadfast in holding firm to what God has put in his heart to do. However, as he went about the Lord's business, he urged us in that great chapter on Corinthians 13. Love all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that's the love of God poured out in his heart and indeed in the hearts of all those who gathered in the ecclesia. So as Christ walks amongst the lampstands, that is the church, we have seen in 1 Corinthians that he has given gifts to his people, to all the people in the church. And each of us should exercise those gifts in the building up of each other by serving and supporting one another, slipping in to do 
what the other is not able to carry out. You see, with an institutional mindset, one will see the gift that God has given as the ability to carry out the task that we need to do. Now, it is not a case of who can do it better. We must not see the things that we do as tasks to be carried out, but as a ministry given to us by the Lord to serve one another. Our gifts are not there to score points, but they are there to express the love of Christ to his people. As we gather, we are not involved in mere social activities like going to a clubhouse. As we gather, we are in the sanctuary of God because He indwells all those who are so gathered. We are in a holy assembly because Christ is in all of us. He is holy and He makes us holy by His presence. So as we gather in a, in a holy assembly, we witness to the grace of God, to the grace that God has showered upon us when we greet one another in the sanctuary. We are greeting one whom the Lord has died for and indwelt. And therefore, the other is a holy one. Thus, Paul advocated the holy kiss in his letter to the Corinthians. Mind you, he mentioned it four times in the New Testament, in the letters that he has written. Well, I leave it to you to express that in an appropriate way, especially when you've got a mask on. <laughs> we are not church builders, or even worse, to think of ourselves as building the kingdom of heaven. Far from it. Yes, we are engaged in ministries. But we are not to think of this as our ministry. Though we often very loosely express it that way. Well, that's permissible as long as we know what we are talking about. God is the minister. He is the one doing his business. We need to see ourselves as his co-ministers. Serving under him and going about his business. In other words, we need to be attuned to what the Spirit is saying to us individually and to us as a whole body in the church. Only then can we move forward in one and the same direction, not pulling the body apart. In the same way, Christ is the good shepherd. As pastors, we are the under-shepherds, guiding the flock as we take the cue from the master. As pastors, we are not to be regarded as the managing director or the CEO of the church, which often is the case. Employed by the church. Far from it. As pastors, we take our directive from the one who walks among the lampstands. And then we share that directive with the body of Christ, that is the congregation, as we must, because Christ walks amongst us as well. Can I also make a point here that the congregation, that the church does not pay the pastor, which is often the way people talk and think 
brother, as the pastor, as the under-shepherd, gives his time to bring the word of life to the congregation. The congregation ensures that his needs are taken care of. And support is a much better word than the institutional salary. Our support, our support includes taking loads off his hands where God has given us the gifts to do so. And in this way, he can devote his time to prepare to bring to us the words of life. Many people would see the activities of the church as work that we do to build the kingdom of God. Not so. Remember that Jesus said to his disciples, I will build my ecclesia, I'll build my church. We have seen from 1 Corinthians that the Spirit gives gifts to the members of Christ's body and together they work to build up that body. I know this is difficult for us to differentiate between the work that we do and the work of the triune God in building up the church. I think it's best that I give it to you, uh, this analogy to illustrate the point that I'm trying to make. It is like getting on board a sailing ship. We work together with what God has given to each of us to do. Some work on the deck to steer the ship. Others work below the deck to support those who are working above or doing maintenance work. Those on the deck will hoist up the sails or lower them as required. And a team of people is required to do that. And when the sails are up, those working on the deck, listen to this, those working on the deck, they do not move the ship. Don't think that they move the ship. They don't. They depend on the wind of the Spirit to move the ship forward. Let's remember that. They need to know where the wind is coming from so as to adjust the position of the sails. This calls for training and ability to read the weather. Hoisting up the sails and setting the direction has to be the leadership team of the ship. That is a way of saying that they need to have a closeness with the Lord, truly knowing Christ who walks in their midst. And unless that is so, then the ship could be heading in a different direction, probably in the direction of an institution, as so many are. Finally, as the body of Christ, our relatedness to Christ and to one another defines the church. Not the programs that the church runs, nor the building she owns. It is the church because we have a common parentage, a common father. We are a church not because we have a common ideology and not even if we have a common purpose. And dare I say that it is not even having a right and proper statement of faith. When Christ walks in our midst, we cannot not be a family because he binds us together in his body and without him the structure will fall apart the life in the church after the spirit has come upon them was described in this way in the book of Acts 
And let me read to you the end of chapter 2 in Acts. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done amongst the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. They were selling the possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Note the last verse. The Lord added to the number, not because they had an outreach program, not because they did so many wonderful things, but because they live as a body of God's people. They live as a body of Christ. And because of that, the Lord added to the number day by day. However, we need to see these activities, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. They are not merely things that we do in a mechanical way. Just because the book of Acts says so, let's do them. No. But they are the activities that the Spirit used to build us up, that is building up this body of Christ. We may see these ministries, we may see these activities as ministries of the church, but no. We may call them the ministry of the church, but really, they are God's ministries for the church. It's what God is doing for us in the things that we do. We do not come to the church just to listen to the word preached. That just goes to the mind. Rather, we come to the church to receive the word of God. As we receive the word of God through the sermons or Bible study, we are receiving Christ into our hearts, who then continue the work in our hearts. As we gather together in fellowship, in whatever way, we are ministering to one another using the gifts that God has given to us. It is God ministering to us primarily through the gift that He has given to us and indirectly through us. So, as we, as we hold up the bread and the cup in celebrating the communion, again, it is God ministering to us through this emblem. God's doing something in us as we take those emblems. And as we pray, we do not seek to wave the hand of God to fulfill our desires. On the contrary, we are acknowledging our inadequacies and our dependence on Him in all that we do. So as we pray, God does something to us. God moves our hands and feet to do His will through the enabling of the Spirit. As we have said earlier, what we do are not merely tasks that we carry out, but ministries through the Spirit to the people of God. God ministries to us, the church.
And so as we close, as we can't sing, we'll read the words together of this hymn, In Christ Alone. Um, let, let's read it all together. Right. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depth of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took God flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. For I first cry to find no breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word, the revelation of your truth to us. And not just to our minds, but to our hearts and our spirit. And Lord, as we bow before you, we ask that your words may come to life in our hearts. That in the things that we do, and in all that we are, may your spirit continue its, its guiding hands in our life, in directing us, in steering us on the path that you ordain for us to walk. So Father, we commend ourselves to you and to your keeping that you will forever be with us and be our guide and our Lord. Amen.